Thank you for joining us for another podcast from the Commonwealth Club. Welcome to the Commonwealth Club. I'm George Hammond, Chair of the Humanities Forum, which organized tonight's event. It's my great pleasure to uh, introduce Adam Hochschild. Many of you know him really well. He's been active for decades with a large number of really, really excellent books. Uh, a book on the uh, colonial in the Belgium called Le- King Leopold's Ghost, a book on World War I to end all wars, Spain in Our Hearts about the, the Civil War, uh, books about uh, how the British societies ended slavery, a lot of books about crises in human society and how they were dealt with, who behaved badly, who behaved well, who was heroic, who wasn't, and maybe something we can learn from that. But I think even more so, what we can learn is uh, from Adam's involvement in this for his entire life, basically, uh, with a particular passionate point of view. I'd also like to uh, remind everybody that the program we were going to do tonight live uh, in the with an audience was on his latest book called Rebel Cinderella. We have moved that to September 22nd. So we, if you come to the club on September 22nd, and we'll have that program. But tonight we're going to cover his entire life's work. And one other thing, happy St. Patrick's Day to everybody. So let's get started. Hi, Adam. Hi, George. Good to be with you and, and with your audience. Yeah. Thanks a lot for joining us digitally like this. So, Adam, uh, as I just said, you know, you've spent your life doing this and, and you, you have a particularly, you know, personal point of view on your project. And uh, you were telling me just before we got started something about being a journalist for the, the Berkeley newspaper during the free speech movement. Is that how you, is it, how you, I bet you were involved before even that then. You must have, you must have already had your interest in it. Well, my first real job was two years as a daily newspaper reporter in the 1960s. And the 1960s were quite an extraordinary time, as uh, I'm sure everyone knows. Uh, I think I'm the person I was and am because I came of age in the 1960s when the civil rights movement was going on, when I was a, a daily newspaper reporter here in California, really my first job out of college. Uh, my wife was a graduate student at Berkeley. Uh, I covered the campus. Uh, the free speech movement was going on. Then the enormous protests against the Vietnam War. And I think these were some of the things that, you know, pushed me into a, an enormous interest in social justice and human rights. And in one way or another, those are the issues I've been writing about for the rest of my life. Have you followed up with any of the characters uh, that you knew during that time? There were some several famous I mean, people who are well-known in Berkeley. Um, have you kept in touch with any of them uh, you know, or, or at least followed their work? Well, Mario Savio, who was really the most inspirational leader of the free speech movement, I did not know well at the time, but I had the pleasure of getting to know him uh, much better some 30 years later a lovely man uh, for whom the idea of free speech was almost a religion, really. Lovely, passionate man. And there's an annual lecture uh, in his honor given on the Berkeley campus each year, which is usually a wonderful event. I was on the committee for a while. In fact, who we got to lecture. He's really the only one of the people from Berkeley in that era that I really kept in touch with. And he, he died some years ago, sadly. Yeah. So uh, let's move to a, a book uh, that has had a great deal of influence and is taught in college campus and everything on 
the Belgian colonial uh, issues from King Leopold's ghost. And I'm, I'm curious how you got started with that particular thing. What attracted you to that idea and to investigate that part of our history where we've been inhumane to each other? Well, one day uh, in uh, the early 1990s, I was sitting on an airplane. You know how you remember where you were mm-hmm. uh, when you read something that had great influence on you. And I was reading a book on another subject entirely, and there was a quotation from Mark Twain, and a footnote at the bottom of the page said, Twain wrote this when he was involved in the worldwide campaign protesting the atrocities in King Leopold's Congo, uh, events which historians believe took 8 to 10 million lives. And I was startled by this because... I thought of myself as sort of a specialist in human rights issues. I'd been to Africa half a dozen times as a journalist, and in fact, at that moment, was involved in writing a book about South Africa. Uh, But I hadn't heard of this. You know, 8, 10 million people killed in in one territory? I knew colonialism was a pretty bloody business, but that seemed an awfully high number. Then the next time I had a chance to go to the library in Berkeley, uh, the wonderful library on the Berkeley campus, one of the great libraries of the world, I began looking at books on African history, and sure enough, I, I found historians giving death tolls for King Leopold's Congo, the, the Congo before it became the Belgian Congo was the private property of King Leopold of Belgium. You know, sometimes they'd say 10 million estimated dead, sometimes 12 million, sometimes 13 million, sometimes only 8 million. And I wanted to find out why had there been such an enormous death toll in one territory uh, more than 100 years ago. And as almost always happens when I pick a piece of history to write about, I discover that I'm not the first person to have asked that question. (laughs) While it was going on, the atrocities in the Congo that led to that enormous death toll were the number one human rights scandal in the world, with thousands of articles and newspapers appearing about it. Uh, Mark Twain and Booker T. Washington did a speaking tour in protest together. Uh, all sorts of notable peoples, like Sir, Sir Arthur Conan Doyle, who wrote the Sherlock Holmes books, um, were part of this protest movement. And then it all got swept under the rug and forgotten. So the story of exactly what happened to produce those deaths and why it got forgotten, and I called the last chapter in that book The Great Forgetting, kept me busy for the next couple of years after that. Yeah. Well, it's a a very interesting event. It also shows a totally different side of Mark Twain. I was wondering if that was part of your your, uh, introduction to it because he, he spent the last 10 years behaving pretty much like you do. (laughs) <laughs> writing, writing about these topics. So, and that's from 1900 to 1910. But uh, let's let's move to uh, another thing where you you talk about how effective some people have been in stopping an atrocity. So you wrote a book about the British uh, group that eventually got slavery outlawed, didn't stop slavery altogether, but made the process in the early 19th century that eventually. Uh, caused this uh, to come to an end. Uh, that's another one of your books, right? Yeah, Bury the Chains, which is about the anti-slavery movement in the British Empire, much less known about in this country than the abolitionists in the United States, mm-hmm. but much more interesting to me. 
because this anti-slavery movement started in England before there was any sort of a movement here. Uh, the British had an enormous number of slaves on the islands in the West Indies that they owned, and they were also the dominant power in the transatlantic slave traffic, bringing uh, roughly half the enslaved Africans across the Atlantic each year in the late uh, 18th century, uh, half of all of those who were brought to the New World from Africa to work on plantations and work to death traveled in British ships. So it was the last country where you would expect a strong anti-slavery movement to break out, just as you would not expect a strong movement against fossil fuels to erupt suddenly <laughs> in Saudi Arabia. Uh, but that's what happened. And the story of the people who made it happen it was a movement that began with dramatic suddenness in the late uh, 1780s. Uh, that book kept me busy for four years telling those people's stories. Mm-hmm. Great. So now um, there's so many great topics that you've written about. So I wanted to, to we'll move to another one, um, which was even a, a more difficult one again. Um, that is Stalin's purges and, and, and what Stalin did. He had, again, a, a sort of something that he had to recover from himself in order to, to, to pull the country together for World War II. So uh, it, what you can tell us about that is also fascinating. Well, I don't think he ever really did recover from murdering people. But uh, Russia and the Soviet Union uh, have always fascinated me, in part because I grew up partly among emigre Russians in this Mm -hmm. country. An aunt of mine, my father's sister, married a Russian emigre who fought on the losing side of the Russian Revolution and Civil Mm -hmm. War, then came to this country. Uh, politics to the right of Genghis Khan, but a wonderful human being. All his friends were were Russian, and we shared a house with them in the summertime. So I heard a lot of Russians spoken and knew a lot of Russians as I was growing up. Um, And uh, uh, so I'd always been interested in Russian history and fascinated, uh, as are so many people, I think, in the whole question of how could the country that gave us you know, writers like Tolstoy and Chekhov, mm-hmm. uh, some of the finest writers who ever lived, also give us the gulag. I had been to Russia a number of times as a journalist in the 1960s, 70s, and early 80s. I spoke the language somewhat clumsily, uh, but enough to interview people. And then when Gorbachev came to power uh, in the late 1980s, and things really began to change uh, it became possible to talk about parts of Russian history that people, you know, simply couldn't talk about in public before. I wanted to listen in on that conversation. So my very tolerant wife and family moved with me to live in Moscow for six months. And I traveled across the country interviewing people. I was tremendously lucky because the month that we arrived, uh, in Moscow, January 1991, was the time, the, the moment that they removed the last restrictions, which had been enormous restrictions, on where foreign journalists could travel. Mm-hmm. So suddenly all, all sorts of parts of the country that had been previously off limits to foreigners for 60, 70 years, you could go to. And I had the experience of being, as I went in search of places like where there had been gulag camps, 
uh, I had the experience of being the first American or Western European that people had ever seen. And that's an experience that's fairly hard to have in today's mm -hmm. world. So I interviewed uh, former Gulag prisoners about their experience. I interviewed uh, former secret policemen, uh, some repentant, some very unrepentant. I uh, saw mass graves and talked to the people who, was dig who were digging them up. I traveled to the site of some of these Gulag camps and tried to write a book, The Unquiet Ghost of Russians Remember Stalin, about this whole problem of how a country comes to terms with a really terrible part of its past. You're really sort of a self-inflicted genocide in a way. Mm -hmm. Well, um, another angle on that one. Uh, Henry Adams, I think, uh, wrote about the, the coming, that would be the 20th century at the time he was writing, was the coming century, uh, as going to be a conflict between Russia and America with these two different approaches to life. And uh, when you were over there uh, with Gorbachev, I, I had also studied Russian and, and uh, went to Russia in 73 for the summer. And uh, when the uh, glasnost was complete and the wall was coming down, I, I wrote to uh, Gorbachev, which I'm sure he didn't get, and said, why don't you go to the U.N.? and give a speech that says, we Russians are extremists, we took this too far, but your reaction to us has saved Western civilization because we now have social safety nets and democracy and incentives, and, and, and the, the, the two combined are, are probably some of the most stable societies that we've had. We'll see how stable they are under the current circumstances. But I, I think you're right about the effect that the Russian Revolution had because it terrified Western government. Right. government. And I remember talking to somebody when I was in Russia that year and uh, asking him, what did you think of the Russian Revolution? And he said, well, it ended up being a terrible thing uh, for us here in the Soviet Union, but it was a great thing for the working class in the West because it terrified their governments into giving them uh, some social benefits. Yeah, I think that's one of the clear things that we can learn from the history of the 20th century. So let's uh, move to yet another uh, one of your books. How about apartheid? You, you, you also wrote about South African apartheid, right? I did. I did a book called The Mirror at Midnight. Uh, South Africa has always um, been a country I've been deeply interested in, in large part because of an experience I had growing up. Uh, I spent a summer when I was 19 years old, summer when I was in college, working for an anti-apartheid newspaper in South Africa. And it was the first time that I'd been somewhere where politics was a very serious business. Uh, it wasn't just a matter of having a disagreement over the family dinner table. It could determine whether you were going to spend, you know, years in jail, whether you'd have to go underground. I got to know people who'd been in jail, who subsequently went to jail. I got to know one man fairly well who was later hanged. And I was just uh, deeply moved and struck by the horrible injustice of apartheid and by the fact that the United States was on the wrong side, was a sort of de facto uh, ally of the apartheid government. Uh, so the country has always intrigued me. I went back there a number of times as a journalist uh, to write magazine articles. And then finally in 1988, which was really kind of the peak of oppression in the apartheid years, I, I went to do a book about the country, which uh, came out 
um, just before things began to, to change in a dramatic way. Um, just got a question from the live stream audience uh, asking about the photos uh, next to you. This is of uh, the rebel Cinderella Rose, uh, Parker Stokes, and uh, we're going to be talking about that. That's Adam's latest book uh, after we cover just a couple more of his earlier books. So for those of you who are watching, asking, that's what those pictures, that's, that's who she is. So um, you have two big uh, issues about war, two big books about war, Spain in Our Hearts and To End All Wars. So let's, let's start with the chronologically first one, To End All Wars. Uh, it seems so uh, hopelessly naive um, that that's how people felt uh, at the time and also that they would look um, at the fact that all the different countries thought it would take about two weeks to beat the other countries, right, when they first started, that God was on their side, that kind of thing. So tell us about how you got interested in that war, that sort of extremely devastating war. Um, and I'm always interested if you, in your research, found anybody who predicted that was going to happen, it was coming, you know, that, that people in the 1910s, 11s, 12s could see that that was certainly a distinct possibility, not absolutely going to happen, but that that could happen. Well, the First World War has always fascinated me for a number of reasons. Uh, I think many people did see it coming. Uh, all sorts of people across the political spectrum, from Virginia Woolf to Rudyard Kipling, uh, saw Armageddon of some sort approaching as the European powers uh, kept arming themselves and arming themselves and arming themselves, you know, building more battleships, building more guns, even when they were all ostensibly uh, at peace and had no outstanding border disputes, which are you know, very often the thing that caused countries to go to war with each other. But I've long been fascinated about the war for a number of reasons, the war of 1914 to 1918. One was the absolute stupidity with which it was fought. You know, where these generals on both sides, day after day, week after week, month after month, year after year, ordered these poor young men to climb out of their trenches and walk, not run, not crawl, but walk, into enemy machine gun fires so that they could be mowed down and killed. Uh, what was in the minds of those generals? What were they thinking? How were their, how was their outlook on life formed? Uh, I was always interested in those figures. And ever since I was a teenager and read a biography of Bertrand Russell, the great philosopher and mathematician, uh, who was also a war opponent and went to jail for his opposition to the First World War in Britain, I've been fascinated by the very brave people, and they were there on both sides and in all countries that took part, who recognized the war as madness while it was going on. And I wanted to somehow write a book that encompassed both these types of, of people, the boneheaded generals, and the brave war resistors. Uh, you can tell which group. <laughs> I your, adjectives, your adjectives do give you away, yes. Sorry. <laughs> uh, I, I couldn't figure out for the longest time how to get both these types into the same book, because I didn't want to just do a series of portraits of the generals and then a series of portraits of the war resistors. And then one day I was reading a very boringly written scholarly article about a British woman pacifist named Charlotte Despard, 
uh, who had been to jail four times in the battle for women's suffrage, uh, spoke out strongly against the war. Scotland Yard would shut down her meetings or, you know, rock-throwing mobs would break them up. And just in one sentence in passing, the writer said, naturally, Mrs. Despard's activities were deeply upsetting to her brother. And it gave, gave his name, Sir John French, which I immediately recognized as British Commander-in-Chief on the Western Front. So I thought, that's an interesting relationship. And then suddenly it struck me, divided families. That's how I'm going to tell this story. I went. I was concentrating on England because that's where the anti-war movement was strongest, most vocal, most articulate, and found several other divided families and tried to tell, retell the story of the First World War, not as a struggle between two sides, but a struggle between people who thought it was a glorious crusade mm-hmm. and people thought it was absolute madness and who tried their best to stop it. That's the story of my book, To End All Wars. Well, they say that the people who write history are the ones who get to make what history means, but it's pretty hard to write the history of the World War I without saying that the, it's, it's madness. It was madness. You know, that was just... <laughs> Right, pretty pretty hard. Um, uh, so, just uh, I don't know if you if you uh, delved into this at all, but obviously Winston Churchill is well known for his uh, leadership during World War II. He's also not as well known, but still well known for the mistakes made during the the war um, in in uh, the Black Sea area. That that those decisions in World War One. So uh, he did kind of come out of World War One not looking as good as he ended up, right? Or, or, or did he make other decisions? That's, that's right. He was an advocate of the uh, what is usually referred to as the Gallipoli campaign, mm-hmm. the uh, attack that tried to seize the Bosphorus, you know, the, the outlet to the Black Sea. And uh, Turkey, was, of course, was on the, the German side. And the campaign failed miserably, uh, mainly because the British underestimated uh, how determined and well-armed uh, the Turks would be. The British mm-hmm. had an outstanding contempt for Orientals and didn't think they would fare very well against British troops. And why were they wrong? Yeah, why were they wrong? Okay, so uh, Spain in our hearts uh, about the Spanish Civil War. Um, as you said, I mean, so Hemingway wrote about it so nicely uh, and, and interestingly. And you, as you said, the Americans were on the wrong side of it. There was a lot of problems. I mean, there's there's Orwell's approach, there's there's uh, Hemingway's approach, and there's Hawkshield's approach. So, what what uh, you know? How do you how do you weigh that Spanish Civil War? Both how badly it came off in terms of the different groups fighting with each other, and therefore ending up Franco being in charge. Um, but in addition to that, um, what the long term consequences were? Lots of people say it was just a a, a preview for World War Two that people were were trying out their weaponry. I think it was a preview for World War II. Uh, what fascinated me about it, and I think I first got interested because I had the pleasure of knowing fairly well several of the American veterans of that war. This was a war where uh, you know some 35 or 40,000 people from uh, more than 50 countries around the world joined as volunteers the international brigades, which fought to defend the elected government of the Spanish Republic from this military coup backed by Nazi Germany and fascist Italy that was staged against it. And 
there were 2,800 Americans among those volunteers, by far the largest number of Americans who have ever, you know, fought in somebody else's civil war. Um, I knew, knew several of them quite well. A couple of them were colleagues of mine at the San Francisco Chronicle when I worked there as a reporter in the 1960s. Uh, and I used to talk to these guys about what made them go to Spain, what it was like when they were there. Uh, also, uh, two of the writers I've long admired most, Ernest Hemingway and George Orwell, both were involved in, in, the, in the war. Hemingway is a correspondent. Uh, although at one point, briefly, taking part in a raid behind enemy lines, George Orwell as a volunteer, uh, and trying to find a way to put all those things together. Uh, I wrote this book, Spain in Our Hearts, which focuses on Americans involved in the war, mm-hmm. volunteers, American correspondents, and an American villain who was a Texas oil man who sold General Franco illegally most of his oil. Something that's not talked about a lot about World War II, uh, which I, I don't think you've written about, but you might know because of the work on Spain, is uh, Spain, Spain didn't have, play a big role in the war, in World War II. It just finished its civil war a couple of years before, um, and it was another dictator. Why didn't Franco kind of connect up and be part of this uh, axis with Italy and... and uh, and Hitler. Well, uh, Franco and Hitler met each other uh, briefly in 1940. And uh, Hitler went away from that meeting thinking that telling somebody I'd rather have a tooth pulled with no anesthetic than meet that man again. (laughs) Who was trying to negotiate, Franco was trying to negotiate to join uh, Germany in World War II, but he wanted to be promised a slice of France and some of France's African colonies and all sorts of things in return. Mm. And Hitler thought this was outrageous and, and that he was asking too much. Spain would not have been a very powerful ally for Germany because it had been so devastated by its own civil war, with hundreds of thousands of people killed and a lot of its industry destroyed. Uh, Franco did, though, um, permit and encourage some 40,000, 45,000 Spanish volunteers to fight with the the Germans uh, on the Eastern Front in Russia. Uh, He gave other sorts of help to uh, Germany as well. Uh, German submarines uh, refueled and resupplied themselves in Spanish ports. As the Germans began losing the war, Franco tilted more towards the Allies, Mm -hmm. Uh, but only when it was clear that the tide was turning against the Germans. So you're basically saying that... that, uh... Franco was a man trying to negotiate a deal without realizing what his his bargaining power actually amounted to. Right, right. <laughs> all right. So that was a great uh, review of many of your works, not all of your work. You have done much more than that. Um, but let's go to Rebel Cinderella, your latest book, um, because it's about a, a woman uh, with a very unusual experience, but also uh, early socialism in, in the United States, an early interest in socialism in the United States. So tell us about Rebel Cinderella. Well, the, my new book, Rebel Cinderella, is basically um, a biography of this woman, Rose Pastor Stokes. And it's a fascinating story. She was a, uh, a Jewish immigrant from Russia, came to this country as a child, uh, arrived in the United States in 1890 at the age of 11, and immediately had to go to work 
in a factory, a factory that made cigars. She worked as a cigar worker for a dozen years. Uh, uh, she'd only had, by the way, less than two years of formal schooling. She worked as a cigar worker for a dozen years. Um, ended up at the end of that time being the sole support for herself, her mother, and six younger siblings who'd been abandoned by a ne'er-do-well stepfather. Uh, when she was 23, she got a new job. She had been, while working in a cigar factory in Cleveland, Ohio, where she'd grown up, she had been sending anecdotes, poetry, scraps of writing to a Yiddish newspaper in New York. Mm-hmm. When she was 23 years old, 1903, the paper invited her to come to New York and work for them there full time. And this was the New York of the tenements. Uh, the Lower East Side, the uh, largest Jewish ghetto in the world. New York was the largest Jewish city in the world at that time. And these were the people that she wrote about, people who lived in tenements like this, uh, who were recent immigrants, uh, often didn't speak English, spoke Yiddish. And these were the people that she wrote columns about. She wrote an advice column for women. Well, one day, six months after she had arrived in New York, in the summer of 1903, the editor gave her a different assignment, which was to go and interview a man who worked at a settlement house. And, you know, settlement houses were established in poor neighborhoods all over the U.S. at that time to bring literacy programs, uh, you know, uh, uh, child care sports and after-school activities for children, uh, adult education classes to neighborhoods that didn't have this kind of thing. And But st- settlement houses were staffed mainly by well-to-do college graduates. Here's the man that Rose was sent to interview, came from a completely different background, James Graham Phelps Stokes. And as you can tell from the name, he was what? White Anglo-Saxon Protestant. He came from one of the wealthiest families in the United States. His parents, for example, had a summer home that was the largest private dwelling in the United States when it was built, 100 rooms in the Berkeley Mountains of western Massachusetts. Uh, The family had enormous wealth, Manhattan real estate, uh, part of the Phelps Dodge mining fortune, a cluster of gold and silver mines in Nevada and a railroad leading to them. But Graham Stokes, as he was known to his, his friends, was a do-gooder who had gone to medical school, been introduced to that New York of the tenements as a medical student, was shocked by it. This is what had motivated him to go to work in a settlement house. They fell in love, courted secretly uh, for two years, and finally got married over the well-concealed opposition of Graham Stokes' family. They married in 1905 on Rose's 26th birthday. Uh, Graham Stokes was seven years older than she was. Mm -hmm. Um, The following year, 1906, uh, they found what they thought was the group that had the best solution to these terrible problems of poverty and injustice in the United States, the Socialist Party. They both joined the party. And for the next dozen years, their friends were, to me, are 
were some of the most interesting people in the United States at that time. Emma Goldman, Big Bill Haywood of the Wobblies, uh, Lincoln Steffens, the muckraking journalist, John Reed, probably the finest reporter in the English-speaking world, uh, Margaret Sanger, the birth control pioneer, Upton Sinclair, the novelist, W.E.B. Du Bois. Uh, these were the folks that they hung out with, uh, who were often their house guests, uh, and whom they often worked with. Uh, and this is the story that I, I tried to tell in my book, uh, Rebel Cinderella. Mm-hmm. Wonderful. Um, so we'll have an entire program on that in September, September 22nd. Obviously, uh, a lot of young people under 30 have gotten reinterested in socialism because of Bernie Sanders. So we'll bring this up to date. So how do you watch that yourself? You, you've, you, you saw the interest in it during the Vietnam War as a young man. You uh, researched it about the early 1900s, um, and now it's happening again. What do you attribute this ongoing interest that keeps coming back? It's not well, just Bernie's personality, right? It's not Bernie's <laughs> It's not his charisma. <laughs> it's not his Brooklyn accent. No. I, I think the real reason that these ideas keep coming back is that, you know, the problems in the United States remain the same. Uh, when Rose and Graham Stokes married in 1905, the top 1% of the American population had a smaller share of the country's wealth and income than they have today. Mm. So that problem of inequality has actually grown worse in our own time. Um, We still have in our own time, I mean, obviously the standard of living is a lot higher than it was in in 1905. We're not all breathing uh, coal smoke in the cities. Mm -hmm. Thanks to Upton Sinclair, you know, we've got some pure food and drug laws and so forth. A lot of things are better, but, a lot of things are still have the same kinds of inequalities that motivated the socialists more than a hundred years ago. It's outrageous, for instance, that, you know, we've got nearly 30 million people in this country without medical insurance of any kind. Mm-hmm. And that tens of millions of others are way underinsured. Uh, and even if you have full medical insurance, a severe medical emergency, as all too many people have learned, can still Put you into debt. Um, you know, other countries have better social safety nets than we do, um, and various other protections as well. So a lot of the basic injustices are still with us, and I think that is the thing that motivates uh, the young people who supported Bernie Sanders, supported Elizabeth Warren, and will continue to support, you know, politicians who draw attention to these injustices. Another thing for your your whole experience of of working together you your wife is also a famous writer and you i assume you both work in the same uh, in the same house we work in adjoining rooms you work in adjoining rooms all the time and 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 you've done this for decades and i think people would like to hear you know that that's a kind of unusual working partnership we just hear a little little bit about it it's a wonderful working partnership uh my wife arlie russell hopeschild is the author of many books uh, the most recent of which, Strangers in Their Own Land, uh, Anger and Mourning on the American Right, was a finalist for the National Book Award a couple of years ago. Uh, and she was trained as a sociologist 
and uh, was a professor of sociology at Berkeley for many years, retired about a dozen years ago, but has continued to write up a storm. And I think in a, in a funny way, our careers have converged because I started off as a daily newspaper reporter and ended up writing books of history, although without a proper license as a historian because I never went to graduate school. But as you mentioned, George, you know, a couple of my books, including King Leopold's Ghost, are often used in college classes, sometimes in graduate classes. Arlie started off as a sociologist and, uh, you know, writing her writing published in academic journals, but now she writes for a general audience. Mm -hmm. So our careers have have converged. In fact, there'll be a piece co-authored by her in, in, on the opinion page in Friday's New York Times. So we're both uh, interested in reaching a general audience rather than a specialized scholarly one. We read each other's work very carefully. I mean, drafts of it as mm-hmm. we're as we're writing. She read two separate drafts of this last book of mine. I read three drafts of, of her last book. And we're talking all the time about the work that we're doing. So we each have sort of come to know the characters in each other's books before we actually meet them on the manuscript page. I'm sure that, uh, you know, people don't really realize, everybody who knows uh, both Arlie and yourself, that you are actually a, a, a partnership. I think it's, it's, a, it's a very interesting, not too many people, you know, everybody talks about Zelda, you know, and, <laughs> and, and how, how influential she was on Fitzgerald, but not, not in a positive way. So it's nice, nice to uh, hear these writing academic, but not totally academic partnerships, right? Yeah. Um, I, I'm sure especially those who are now at home, uh, having to stay at home and want to write as long as they have that opportunity to hear that it works sometimes. Um, here's the, uh, and I'd like to remind our uh, audience uh, online and uh, on uh, the video that we're speaking with Adam Hawkshield um, about his humane life's work, um, all the different books that he's written, and there's it's time for, for questions. And one of the first questions is, is a, a nice direct one. I love your books because they read like novels rather than history books. Given that you began in newspapers, how did you choose to write about history? You just mentioned a little bit about that, but how did you make that switch over, make a little bit more detail? Well, uh, I've always enjoyed reading history. I think I probably inherited that from my father. Uh, I had the great advantage of growing up in a house full of books. And my father, actually, though his, his work was as a businessman, he was an executive of a, a mining company, uh, he wrote history in his spare time and did a wonderful history book about the region of uh, upstate New York where we had a summer home. And my first book, actually, Half the Way Home, A Memoir of Father and Son, is a mm-hmm. memoir of my relationship with him. So I, I grew up with that love of history. I had some very good history teachers in high school and college. Uh, I enjoyed working as a newspaper reporter and then for some years as a writer for magazines. And I still enjoy reverting to my journalist mode when I find myself somewhere interesting with interesting people in front of me to write about. Uh, and I, I, I love, you know, being able to go somewhere and come back with a story. But I like writing about history because unlike a lot of the things that uh, journalists write about, it doesn't change on you. Uh, here's what I mean. You could do the best possible book on the current American 
political situation in the year 2020. Uh, but, you know, by the year 2023, it's going to be outdated. Mm-hmm. Uh, however, if you write about something 100 years ago and you do a decent job with it, uh, people are going to be more likely to still read that book. I think that's one of the things that draws me to write history, that there is the promise, at least, that the book will remain relevant and not outdated for a, a long time after you, after you finish it. But I also like delving into history because there are so many interesting ways in which you can find people's voices. In writing Rebel Cinderella, for instance, I had wonderfully rich material to, to, to work from. Uh, this couple, uh, such an extraordinary marriage, inter-ethnic, inter-class, she from an extremely poor background, he from an enormously wealthy background, they wrote thousands of letters, many of them to each other, when they were falling in love, when they were when they were married, and when, not to give away too much of the, the story, uh. the marriage came to a very bitter end. And they saved all of those letters, um, almost as if expressly for me, so I would have something to work from. <laughs> I'm, not, I'm not the first writer to uh, read their letters. Uh, Rose, who's really the central figure of the book, kept a diary for a while. Uh, and so I would uh, urge all your listeners, you know, save your letters, write diaries, uh, write a memoir. Actually, both Rose and her husband Graham wrote unpublished memoirs, mm-hmm. uh, dueling with a very different version of their experience. Uh, his was never published. Hers was published only half a century after she died. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I love finding people's voices in ways like that. Uh, finding, in the case of a couple like this, what did the people that they knew write about them? Uh, and that you can find, too, in going through letters and diaries and memoirs. One source of information for me was not available to them at the time because they didn't know it existed. Uh, the, there were, Rose was extremely outspoken in opposing American entry into the First World War and was actually arrested and sentenced under the Espionage Act because of that. And today, though, we can have access to the reports of the Bureau of Investigation agents, the agency that was the predecessor of the FBI, who followed her around, kept notes on her speeches, and so forth. And we can see correspondence in their files. This is a fascinating part of the story from an uncle of Graham's who hated her and hated her politics and was mm-hmm. trying to get deported from the country, writing to the Justice Department saying, why don't you deport this woman? <laughs> All this stuff was not available to them at the time. Yeah. Nice to have family so like that. How can, you, how can you not enjoy writing history when you have material like that to work with? And something you said also, uh, I think, was an insight into your, your enjoyment. You talked about that you liked writing history so that it, it was more relevant, that the book lasted. So uh, in thinking about your readership uh, when you write, do you think about a projected audience, or do you write for one particular person, or do you write to, for your what, what interests you the most? A lot of writers have this kind of imagined audience uh, for it. Um, you obviously want an audience that will keep being interested for a time. But how, do you think about this much when you're writing? I don't. I am drawn by what interests me, and then my job is to make it interesting for other people. Yeah. And I think I can. I try to do that by 
looking for the human details, looking for how to bring the sound of human voices into the story, uh, and, um, you know, telling a story that has drama in it. Mm-hmm. And history is so full of dramatic relationships like this one that you don't have to make anything up. It's, <laughs> it's all there. Uh, and, uh, you know, I mean, there are people who, who, uh, write history and take liberty with it. There are people who write fiction. I love reading fiction, but mm-hmm. I, I don't make anything up. I don't need to. There, there are so many extraordinary characters who populate the history of our country and other countries in the world that, you know, these books almost write themselves. Well, it goes right to the, the next question, um, which is, if you're, you've, you've spent your life writing so many different books on so many different topics, some of them very, very depressing in a way, and you're talking with great enthusiasm about the individuals that you write about. Um, have you gotten more disappointed over time, or have you been more optimistic, more pessimistic? That's the idea. How, how has writing all these books, I mean, some of them are about great triumphs uh, of the human spirit over stupid things that we've done before. But but not all of them. So uh, how has it affected you, your your attitude towards the human race in the future? Well, I think the only book of mine that I can say was a, a, a story of a triumph was the Bury the Chains about the British anti-slavery movement, mm-hmm. which did finally bring um, slavery in the British Empire to an end and brought it to an end, incidentally, 25 years before it came to an end in the United States. Right. Um, if we had, if we had not had the American Revolution, slavery would have come to an end earlier here. That's kind of what you're saying. Uh, yeah, if we had still been part of the British Empire, yeah. you know, in, in 1838 when slavery was abolished there. Uh, but, of course, you know, that's not an unmixed uh, triumph because we are still dealing indirectly century and a half later, I think, with the consequences of slavery and with injustices that come out of out of slavery. However, you know, the British abolitionists were successful, and I ad- admire them for what they did. The other stories that the brave resistors who tried to stop World War I failed, mm-hmm. and millions of people were killed. Um, the good guys, the, including the American volunteers who went to defend the Spanish Republic, lost. Uh, but they lost what I think was the first battle of World War II, and many of them, incidentally, went on and fought in the American armed forces in World War II. Uh, you know, anywhere you look in history, it's filled with mass murder, death, destruction, slavery, injustices of various kinds. But there are also all kinds of people who fought to end these things, uh, who had the courage to speak out. And these are the people who interest me and whom I enjoy writing about and whom you'll always find in one way or another in my books. And in Rebel Cinderella, even though this particular marriage did not end well, uh, you know, for the better part of their lives together, both Rose and Graham Stokes were very much involved in the leading social justice movements of their times. And I think it was an exciting time and uh, an optimistic time, and I enjoyed writing about it. Does that make me an optimist about the world today? Well, it's 
hard to say that you are, even though I have an optimistic temperament, I think it's hard to say that one feels optimistic when Trump is in the White House and the coronavirus is ravaging not just our country, but the whole world. Mm -hmm. Uh, But nonetheless, there are a lot of good people out there, and I hope in the end they will prevail. That's leading us right to this question. You've studied and written about many people who've overcome incredible challenges What's the greatest lesson you might impart to those who feel helpless right now, feel helpless? I think it's a very timely, it's a great question, um, whoever asked it. Um, thank you. And uh, I'm, I'm going to guess that given your, your both realism and still you know, optimism about certain characters, that, that we have a chance to do something about the situation which will not be the end of the world sort of helplessness that people feel um, because of what's going on. Well, it's understandable that people feel helpless. Uh, I sometimes do also. And I think one of the things that makes me feel uh, most helpless is uh, fear that we're not going to be able to dislodge uh, Donald Trump from office. Mm-hmm. Uh, nonetheless, I do think there are the best cure for a sense of helplessness is to find some arena in which you can... Um, fight for things that you can succeed in winning. Now, national politics are in a pretty terrible state in this country, as I think most of your listeners would agree. But we are lucky to live in a state, California, where some extraordinary things have happened. Mm -hmm. Uh, Look, for example, at the strides that California has made in the direction of alternative energy. I'm a bit prejudiced about this because my oldest son is the chair of the California State Energy Commission. Uh-huh. But from him, I, I learn all sorts of statistics. Mm-hmm. Uh, 57% of the electricity generated in California now comes from non-carbon sources. Mm. That You certainly cannot say that about the United States as a whole or about almost any other state in the union. Uh, we're moving rapidly in that direction. California has set targets for the you know the reduction of fossil fuel use that are far in advance of the weak agreement that the countries of the world agreed to in Paris uh, a few years ago. California actually was a part of a group of small countries, Italian provinces, German states, and so on, who signed on to a much tougher agreement of what their targets were. Mm-hmm. So I think there's hope about things being done at the state level here. Uh, I think, you know, if you think everything about whether you feel optimistic or pessimistic uh, depends on whether we can win the White House, uh, you're going to feel discouraged. But there are city halls to win. There are seats seats in state legislatures to to win. Um, There are seats on county board of supervisors. You can get involved in politics at all sorts of levels where it is possible to make a difference and to uh, do some real good, you know. So I would say there are all kinds of arenas in which one can fight for something and win. All politics is local, uh, but don't do it before social distancing has has been uh, canceled. Right. (laughs) Um, Here's another general question. Does the phrase flow of history have meaning to you over your lifetime, the flow of history? flow of history. I, I, I have to say no. I, I have not think of 
Yeah, you can think of history as a river flowing past, but um, I don't know. The metaphor doesn't do much for me. Let me let me look at it from another point of view. Are you when you look at history, do you do you think of it in terms of the forces? Uh, you know, there's been a, a discussion through the 20th century. I'm not sure it's being discussed so much anymore. Whether it's impersonal forces that make history and that it, it carries along the leaders, or do the leaders at least ride that horse and and move it in different directions? What's your your opinion? How much influence individual decision making has? Well, obviously, there are tremendous forces, good and bad, that are there and have uh, huge influence um, and that recur. I mean, you look at the underground river of racism and nativism in this country. You see Trump railing away against immigrants. And he is echoing people who did exactly the same thing 100 years ago. Mm-hmm. Uh, did exactly the same thing, you know, 150, 160 years ago. That kind of river of venom in this country is a constant. At the same time, you look at uh, the way people respond. For instance, I'm just looking at what my neighborhood is doing in the coronavirus uh, crisis. The number of people who are reaching out to each other, mainly by email or phone, saying, do you have everything you need? Are you okay? Uh, Can I get you some food? Uh, Here in Berkeley, where I live, there are more than 100 people who immediately signed up to a citywide effort to match volunteers with people who needed something, drivers, somebody to bring them food, somebody to do other errands for them, and so forth. And I think that kind of, you know, that's another sort of constant uh, in this society and in other societies that uh, is there and comes out in times of crisis. Individuals, of course, have an enormous uh, impact on history, both for good and ill. Mm-hmm. I mean, uh, who could argue that uh, Stalin and Hitler uh, didn't have a big impact right. uh, for worse on the times in which they lived, and other people as well. At the same time, imagine what the United what would have happened in the United States uh, had we had somebody other than Franklin D. Roosevelt as president going through the Great Depression. Uh, somebody who did imagine that uh, was Philip Roth in his book right. Plot of America, who imagined Lindbergh as as president of the US at that time. Mm-hmm. Uh, so yeah, I think individuals can make a difference. Um, to go back to the free speech movement where we almost started, the free speech movement has been criticized, um, to steal Nat Hentoff's words, free speech for me, not for thee. It was free speech for the left. It was free speech for the right stifled at Berkeley. So that's a, not an unusual, an unusual question for San Francisco, but let's ask it. Well, uh, I'm not sure where the question refers to the free speech movement of the 1960s. Right or the recent controversies on campus. Uh, certainly in the 1960s, I don't think there was any stifling of right-wing speech that I recall. Uh, this was a time when J. Edgar Hoover was riding high, when CIA recruiters were openly operating on campus and so forth. Uh, in the last few years, there have certainly been cases when 
right-wing speakers have come to the Berkeley campus, I think in order to de- deliberately provoke a reaction against them. Mm-hmm. And of course, there are these crazy types, you know, the, the anarchists who dress all in black, who dutifully come out and supply that reaction. And then the right has an excuse to say, we're the victims here. <laughs> I think the vast majority of my fellow Berkeleyans and, and other people who consider themselves on the left-hand side of things in this country would say, you know, free speech is for everybody. It's not just for me. It's absolutely for everybody. And I think that's just uh, tremendously important. So political theater distorts our viewpoint. Um, you're obviously extremely interested in history, um, and that, that history has become... Uh, fewer people have been interested in history. And do, do you think that America's dealing with the rest of the world is partially uh, problematic because of our lack of understanding the history of those countries, those civilizations, those cultures? Uh, yes. I mean, look at the very fact that the U.S. went to war in Afghanistan. Mm-hmm. Uh, Good example. You want to be able to look at history and see what happened to the other countries, first the British Empire and then the Russians, who tried to uh, make things in Afghanistan go their way. They didn't succeed. Take a lesson from that. Yeah, yeah. Well, in in your experience uh, with different things, now you've never written about the Vietnam War, I, I think, right? I have not. Uh, a uh, few articles here and there. I was very much engaged in the anti-war movement. I assume that, yeah. Early 70s, but it's not something I've written about. Did you feel too close to the subject? Not, not far no. enough away or...? It's just, uh, when I do a book, it's because I see a story mm-hmm. that uh, I don't see anybody else telling, or I don't see anybody else telling in a way that I can imagine it being told mm-hmm. humanly and dramatically. And there have been a lot of good books written about the Vietnam War. Um, sometimes people ask me, well, why haven't you written anything about the Holocaust? Right. Well... Uh, you know, I lost relatives in the Holocaust, uh, had relatives who survived it, uh, but there have been a lot of good books written about that, too. And if somebody brings me a Holocaust story or a Vietnam War story that nobody else has told and that's a good one, I will tell it. Great. Great answer. So we have a couple more questions here um, at, before we finish up. Very relevant question again. Could you say a few words about the history of the 1918 Spanish influenza and how it affected society at the time? Do you know about that? I do know about that. Not as much as I should know, but it it is estimated to have killed more than 600,000 people in the United States. And I believe you're now talking about estimates of uh, well above 50 million people in the world as a whole. Um you know, this was a time when medicine was not as advanced as it is today. They didn't really know what to do to do for it. It was influenza, which tragically seemed to affect uh, healthy young people more than anybody else. And the great bulk of the people who died were, you know, people in their their twenties and thirties uh, who were otherwise healthy. Uh, a relative of mine uh, died in the, in the flu pandemic then. It was closely associated with the First World War because social distancing is not something you have in wartime. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> you know, 
the uh, a disease like this spreads very rapidly when people are in very close contact with each other. Where are they in close contact? In army barracks, on intensely crowded troop ships that uh, took them from the United States to Europe, uh, and then in trenches and bunkers uh, at the Western Front in France. The first medically recorded case of the influenza epidemic uh, came in a U.S. Army base in Kansas in 1918, and this was just at the point when huge numbers of American soldiers, more than well over 2 million uh, in the end, were being shipped in these crowded troop ships from the U.S. to France. And they can trace the way the flu spread out from the port of Brest in France where these mm-hmm. folks landed. So the war certainly accelerated the, the spread of this thing, just as the way today, you know, international air travel is something right. that has spread this, the coronavirus very rapidly uh, around the world. And, and when they passed the rule saying everybody has to fly home right now, uh, that seemed to be exactly the worst thing to do at the moment, right? Exactly. I mean, but imagine the political uproar if you said nobody comes into the United States, whether there's an American citizen or anybody else. Right. Because right. at any given point in time, I'm sure there are several million American citizens who, for work or vacation or something, are traveling in other countries. And if you try to prevent all these folks from coming home, um, it would be politically very difficult to do. So let's finish with one political uh, question. Um, A lot of people talk about how polarized we are today. Um, Some people think that, you know, our country is divided because there are red states and blue states, even though the vote in those states is not that much different, you know, that there's there's red and blue in each state. Um, and the other element of it, I think, is the gerrymandering uh, that took place. Uh, everybody thought that would be a great way to keep themselves in office, but it ended up making the primary the, the official election for a lot of uh, seats in Congress, uh, which causes things to move towards the extreme because primaries are not quite the same as a general election. Um, so, in a way, both parties uh, shot themselves in the, in the feet, and now we have these more extremes. And uh, he was wondering exactly how you thought we might be able to move a little bit more towards the middle uh, in order to avoid the problem of, of, of one side or the other being uncomfortable with, with the what the parties are putting forward. Well, if you make me an uh, absolute monarch of the United States for a day, <laughs> several Several of the reforms that I would do, one would be drop the Electoral College, popular vote for president. Mm-hmm. Uh, a second reform would be very, very, very strict laws to get money out of politics. Mm-hmm. A third would be to eliminate gerrymandering by uh, making congressional districts and state legislative districts apportioned by uh, an impartial commission, mm-hmm. which happens here and there. The state of Iowa, for example, does it mm-hmm. that way. Uh, I think a fourth reform I would introduce would be proportional representation Mm. Uh, because that, when you have a parliamentary system with proportional representation, uh, it forces parties at different points on the political spectrum to work together. Sometimes Mm -hmm. it's necessary to combine several parties to make a working coalition. So those are some of the things I'm going to do during my, my one day of absolute rule. Well, it, it, it could be that you'll get a lot of write-in votes in November uh, for Absolute Monarch. 
Thank you very much, uh, Adam. That was just a wonderful conversation. Thank you very much for cooperating in our, our virtual event. And I'd like to uh, remind everybody that we're doing many more of these, uh, at least two or three a week uh, during uh, the uh, shutdown uh, that's uh, happening here. We're doing it without live audiences. And just one thing to remember in our attempt to try to understand other people, other cultures, our own cultures, people in our cultures that are different, it's always good to try to see it from their point of view. And when you have an unusual experience, sometimes it helps. Uh, right now, for example, we're, we're practicing social distancing in a way that you probably will and hopefully will never have to do again in your life. And maybe that will help us understand why, for example, monasteries were so popular during the plague in the Middle Ages. Because, you know, it makes people, I mean, they practiced social distancing centuries before we did. So let's try to understand each other better. And I hope that you enjoy some more online programs at the Commonwealth Club. Thank you very much for listening in. And so ends another event in the 118th year of enlightened discussion at the Commonwealth Club of California. You've been listening to the Commonwealth Club of California. Hear thousands of our podcasts on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, and Stitcher. If you like what you've heard, please consider supporting our work and help us bring 500 programs a year to listeners like you. Go to commonwealthclub.org slash donate. Think your way around the world with our travel programs to exciting domestic and international destinations. And when you're in the Bay Area, please join us live at our events. Thank you for listening and for your support. Thank you.